Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. Today we're talking about distribution and how to get your movie onto digital platforms and self-distribution. I am Giles Alderson, co-writer and director of the psychological horror film The Dare and World of Darkness vampire feature documentary. Our other hosts, Andrew Roger and Dan Richardson, are filming, but we have the brilliant director of Freak Out, Stalled, and the soon-to-be-released Fanged Up. It's Christian James. Hello, Christian. Hi, Giles. How are you doing? Good to be here, as always. Good, very, very good to have you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Good. You all right? Yeah, all good. Yeah, all... Uh, yeah, yeah. Nothing all the, to say. Nothing to say. All the better for seeing your beautiful face. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Why not check out some of our previous shows? Listen to the brilliant episode with Mark Strong, which chats all about his uh, failed Bond audition and wonderfully working with brilliant directors like Matthew Vaughan and Danny Boyle. Uh, listen to the episode with Sam Miller discussing directing for TV. Or why not the episode with the Oscar winner Mark Sanger? There's so many podcasts that we have done that you should be listening to. Do go check those out. There's also one with Christian James, who's sat right beside me now. Which is, is that what? Well, it's pretty much all about. Why interview myself? Yeah. About <laughs> getting into. Um, oh, yeah. I think one of the first, one of the first ones we did. Yeah. yeah. Was, but, uh, right. Our guest today is Jason Brubecker. Now, Jason Brubecker is a Los Angeles based movie distribution executive specialist in direct-to-consumer distribution strategies. He currently consults with media companies, rights holders and content creators to develop strategies to source content, maximise distribution, grow audiences, build a buzz around it and create a community around each film that he's involved in. He also runs a podcast and website, Filmmaking Stuff, or filmmakingstuff.com, whichever you prefer. It is fantastic. It's really worth a listen to. I've learned so much from Jason's teachings on there. Sorts of stuff. Anyway... Welcome to the show, Jason Brubaker. Hey, happily. Hey. Absolute pleasure, man. How are you doing? I take it it's sunny over there. It's always sunny in your podcast. It's always sunny in uh, Southern California, that's for sure. It's not here. It's cold. It's London. It's raining. It's cold. It's foggy. Jack the Ripper's around. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well. Winter, it's always around in the winter, it's awful. It's not good. So, if you tell us a little bit about your background, that'd be great. So our, our listeners can get up to date and up to speed and then check your work out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like a lot of everybody listening to this, you know, when I when I decided upon a career choice, no other vocation appealed to me more than filmmaking. Uh, so like a lot of people, I set out trying to figure out some ways to break into this whole industry. And uh, through, you know, a lot of trial and error, I ended up making uh, some films and in the process of trying to sell those films, I ended up working in film distribution. So mm-hmm. most of my days are now spent working with independent filmmakers, helping them to get their content into the popular digital marketplaces, which, you know, uh, knowing a thing or two about the world and the way it's changing. Uh, I know we're on other sides of the pond, mm-hmm. as they say, but but it certainly is we are certainly globally coming into a world that's just full of uh, video on demand as our options and, and the ability to watch whatever we want to watch when we want to watch it. Um, I, I find that incredibly intriguing. So again, I help filmmakers break into that world uh, and get their content in the marketplaces with, while at the same time avoiding a lot of the typical film distribution shenanigans, uh, which are becoming increasingly a thing of the past. So I suppose if we jump back a bit, Jason, what what kind sure. of, so you started as a as a, obviously you're a filmmaker now, but you know what sparked off this need to be involved with film, 
And, you know, where did the path first take you? Uh, when I was in college, um, my senior year, there was this, there was, I saw this flyer where each student could pay $1,000 US and we could have this class where we'd make a short film. And so I got involved in that class and I really just got the film bug. We shot on 16 millimeter and it was right. just fun, you know, to go through that process of loading a camera and, yeah. and getting shots and planning out the day so cool. and then getting the film processed and then taking it to the lab to get, you know, the sound mix. And I just loved, I loved the creative process and I loved the collaboration. It's great with film, isn't it? How you can, you shoot something, don't know what you're getting. You can't watch dailies. You just film, 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 and then you see what you got, you know, maybe a few days, maybe a week or more later. Yeah, and and I I found it fun, but I also found that part of it frustrating. You know, when we fast forward to what we're dealing with today, we can go to our local electronics shop and buy a camera that produces cinematic results for not a whole lot of money. And and if you compare that to, you know, that student short that I'm describing, it's mm. for what we paid for that student short, I could have you know, bought this modern day equipment and I would have made like 10 shorts that probably would look a lot better than the 16 millimeter. So it, while, I, while I love the art and I love the, there was a certain ritual to loading the camera, right? I miss that. Mm, yeah. It, it's, it had a bit of stress to it too. You didn't want to flash the film uh, and overexpose anything um, prematurely. You had to be so careful when you unloaded the camera uh, a lot of times you did it in complete darkness. I don't know. There was there was just something really awesome about that experience. I feel like I've missed and out because I, mean, I didn't well, I didn't get to do that. I've had straight yeah. to digital. I, I so I've been so I've done both. I've made a feature on film, and uh, the, the the second two features were, were digitally. And I I would say I think if you're Christopher Nolan mm. or or JJ Abrams, where you've got a lot of resources Tantino. and and Kodak will open up whatever you need to mm. just, you know, to to develop your film. But um, if you're a struggling filmmaker, I think film is not the way to go. And the guesswork involved, for me at least, made me play it too safe. I would say. Whereas if you shoot digitally, you can go. Do you know what? We'll give us a try, and we'll try. So although a lot of people really champion film, I do agree it looks amazing, inherently amazing. Mm. I think. Uh, for a lower budget filmmaker, is digital all the way? Yeah, and, um, I, I would much rather see filmmakers actually get things made, yeah, sure. than to wait around for ten years to, to save up enough money for film. Yeah, because I'd love to shoot on film. I'd love to, but again, it's it's resources and time. And like you say, young filmmakers or filmmakers trying to make their first film or even their second or third, you can't really go. Well, do you know, what? I'm demanding to shoot this one on film. You have to say. I've just got to make my film any way possible. And if that's with a 5D or with a red or whatever you can get your hands on, then you go make it. Otherwise, you're not making a film. You're just sitting around going, I just want to shoot on 35 mil and no one takes you seriously. Well, that was us. That describes, you know, the first feature I was involved with. Um, we had the choice because we'd done all these shorts in, in 16 millimeter and super 16. Um, and then it was the it was the difference between making another short or just putting our resources together and shooting a film on digital. Yeah. And that was again, that was 2005 when, when we shot the first feature. Was that and we took it to market in 2006. And, and I'm, I don't think we would have ever made it had we focused on, you know, film. Uh, but with that said, it, it was then getting trying to get that film into the marketplace that 
put me on the path to film distribution. Ah, was that Special Dead? Was that that film? It was. Ah, excellent, excellent. No, it's, it's great. What really. was it? What, I, mean, I suppose, obviously, uh, the, the thing is like money. Where do you find the money to, you know, everyone says, oh, just get up there and make a movie. It's like, yeah, but where did the Still money the come money, from? Yeah. yeah. So obviously you have got quite a few exec producer credits. So where were you sort of, where were you uncover, unearthing all this special gold to make these these movies? In, in, in truth, I, I personally partnered with people that had some resources that I didn't have. Mm. Um, if you look at some of the producer credits on the things I worked with, it's not as though I was solely involved in the productions and running the whole show. Um, I played to my strengths and, and did what I could to, you know, whenever we'd come together, but it was a team effort, you know, and, and just for an example, one of the films, our, our buddy Owen runs a lighting and camera rental house. Yeah. And so he was able to drive an entire grip truck. I, I, I estimate, and he estimates because he's pointed it out that <laughs> that was probably over a hundred thousand dollars worth of like uh, equipment. And then you know, instead of him taking a day rate, he just took equity in the project. Yeah, sure. As sure. Amazing. Producer. So yeah. there's all these sorts of things that you can do to be resourceful. And that part of filmmaking, frankly, hasn't changed since the beginning of this industry. Sure. Yeah, it is some favors who, you know, we talk about that quite a lot about if you're friends with people, they like you and it is all about being nice, be be respectful and be respected. People then will say, yeah, do you know what? I will give you my lighting truck for the weekend or for, for three weeks, whatever, on this specific rate or for free because they like you and want to work with you regardless of your work. Um, it's sometimes about um, it's, well, actually most of the time it's about personal opinions, isn't it? Personal skills and who you like. <laughs> It really is, and it's and it's just trying to figure out, you know, um, at the end of the day, uh, most of the people I know that I've worked with, we, we started out on smaller projects, and we built a lot of trust with each other, because, and I'm responding to, like, a lot of questions I get, which is, how do you find a team and put together a team? I, I still think, you know, for people that are in communities that are away from the film industry, everybody's close enough to a film festival there's so many film festivals that take place all year everywhere um that going to those places and, and trying to make friends with people and then making friends and then getting involved in small weekend projects is the beginning of of like a lifelong uh relationship that will be productive and and so you have the stuff that you do that makes you money, you know, uh, some, some of my friends work in the industry, some of them work outside the industry, but nonetheless, you come together and you make these projects. And over time, you know, the goal is to make as many projects as you can so that you're running your own library where it kind of creates uh, a bit of an annuity. Yeah. You've, so you've been a filmmaker for quite a while. You've been making lots of bits and pieces and exec produce and producing stuff. And then you got into the distribution side of stuff. Um, did that come through actually making your own films? Absolutely. The, you know, the majority at this point, if you look at if you look at my career in terms of when I got started and all this and what I've been doing in all the years, I would say at this point, the majority of my career has been spent in film distribution. Um, so while I have gone to set recently, um, it, it's not as though that's a, a steady part of my life. More of my time is spent talking with independent filmmakers and trying to help them access the digital marketplaces to maximize revenue. Great. So 
let's say uh, filmmakers now got a film, they went, got off their asses, they did really well, they made something that's decent. It's a decent film for a low budget. What's their next step now? What would you advise them? So you're saying they're, they're fully finished with the film at this point and they're looking to take it out to market? Yes. Well, there's two things that you do right at that point. One, you decide whether or not you want to do film festivals or two, you decide whether or not you want to make it available for sale. And I'll just assume at this point that, you know, uh, a lot of filmmakers want to do some film festivals first, um, as is the case here in the United States. Um, And if not, you could obviously ignore this part. But if you want to do film festivals first, the ones that seem to have the most um, value lift for a filmmaker would be the big time film festival. So uh, and, and this is a little bit obvious, but if you can get into Sundance or South by Southwest, or Telluride, or Toronto, or, or you know some of these big festivals, what will happen is that will add some perceived value to the film. And then later on down the road, when you try to negotiate deals with places like Netflix, that can help you um, and, and serve you better as an independent filmmaker. I suppose the issue will be is if they haven't got the funds to, to, to send it to all these places, and they can't do the festival route, let's say, what's... What would you suggest? I mean, you suggest doing it anyway and, and raising that money or they should have that money and thought about it beforehand? Yeah, I think most filmmakers and me included, which, again, with most of the stuff I'm speaking from experience, but sure. most filmmakers work so hard, you know, to get a film made that they forget about the actual, you know, getting it out to market part of it, mm. um, which in its own right is, you know, that's that's another hat. That's another artwork that you kind of need to incorporate it. You, you don't need to be a professional marketer, but you need to work with some people that know what they're doing when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that can help you a great deal. Yeah. So, um, so what things like uh, poster design, uh, the, the actual advertising of it, your Facebook page, all those type of things. Everything about your film should look professional and big. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of people that try to become graphic designers with their film. I would not suggest doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that ruins the perceived value. And I mean, we laugh at it, but I, but I would say it's a fair amount, like maybe 60% of the titles that I see come through with like terrible artwork. It looks like somebody's kid sister did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I only laugh because I've been there myself. You've done something, you know, mildly, mildly decent at best on Photoshop. So you're like, this is, you know, to you, it's like amazing. Mm. Uh, but I know what you mean to, to anyone else out there. It's like, yeah, try again. Um, Jason, what's what is the if a film comes to you completed? What are the most common mistakes you see? What are the ones that you know eye rolling? Kind of like, okay, another one of these. You know, uh, what's what's the most common thing you see? Frankly, the artwork is is first and foremost because it, it looks terrible. The next thing I would add is uh, it's typically when it comes to the pitch or the description, it's typically a very long meandering story about love and loss and heartache and science fiction and zombies. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> in, in other words, there's there's a lot of filmmakers that that tell me that their film doesn't fit into a specific genre. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm not asking, you know, these questions to try to put somebody in a box, but I'm trying to put you in a box because when you're on popular marketplaces like iTunes or Google Play, you got to fit into one of these genres. Yeah. Right? So, I would say choose the one that's closest to your film. And, and quit blabbering on and on about the entire story. There's a big thing called in, in, the, in the world of selling called selling past the sale. Right. And it's this point in a conversation where the other party agrees to your offering. They're totally excited about your offering. They're ready to take next steps. 
the worst thing you can do at that point is keep talking. Just get the heck out of the rooms. Go. Very recently here in the United States, we had the American film market. And this happened over and over and over again that I would have conversations with people and it would just go on way too long because the people I was talking to, they didn't have a set agenda. And, and I'm not trying to sound like pretentious or egotistical. Um, I'm very nice about these things. I, I'm just trying to say as a matter of feedback, if you're not talking to me and you're talking to somebody else where their time's incredibly even more and more valuable, uh, don't, don't waste it. Yeah. You got to get out. That's the tricky thing, isn't it? When does that person, or when do whoever's selling their film, when do they know that okay, I've I've hit the, hit the jackpot here? When do they move on? I suppose that's probably something you can't teach. That's probably something that's just inherently instinctive. Well, I think I think it, it can be taught in the sense that you should go in there with an objective, and if you hit your objective, get the heck out of there. Don't don't try to double down sure. at that meeting. You're, you're a lot of what you're doing here that I think a lot of people forget is you're looking to build relationships and distributors are looking to build relationships with you. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's not just for the film you have now. Um, but there's two things that are happening is the film you have now, does that represent some potential value? And then secondly, is the filmmaker somebody that you're going to want to work with for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's, there's filmmakers that unfortunately just, uh, present themselves for lack of a better term, they come across as crazy and mantic and, and not in a fun, you know, inviting way either. <laughs> so, sure. so, but, but in truth, you know, if you're playing this right, you have to understand this is a very small industry and everybody tends to know everybody. So mm-hmm. your, your reputation is so important. And it's getting smaller and reputation is traveling faster. Definitely. Something we have at home on the podcast a lot is that the, the myth of the hissy fit director is it's just that really it's fast becoming a myth because it just doesn't it doesn't work so much anymore because if you are that then people won't work with you though it just you just stop working try pulling in favors then Except, you know. reputation just goes yeah to your point life is too short you know to spend time working with people you don't really like yeah i mean i want to i want to work with people i like and trust and, and feel like we're doing fun stuff together absolutely agree so let's say someone's now got their their film, they've done some festivals, small, big. They might have even got into the massive on Sundance. Sure. What's next for them? Uh, like, say, someone might pick it up there. They win a few awards. What's their strategy to find the right distributor for their film? Well, there's two ways to go about it at that point, or actually three ways. One, you could choose to find a distributor and give up all of your rights. Two, you could choose to self-distribute it and, and, and keep all of your rights. Or three, you could do something that's called hybrid distribution, where you keep some rights, but then you license out other rights to your film. So a good example of that might be that the filmmaker keeps the UK rights, but then gives up the worldwide rights to sales agents that have, you know, better relationships throughout the globe. Um, with that in mind, you know, depending on which strategy you take, and, and I think for the sake of our conversation, I'll focus on the hybrid distribution strategy, mm-hmm. where the filmmaker keeps some rights. And then and then licenses out some other rights. Yeah, I think our, our guys will definitely be interested in that side of things. Sure, go. Yeah. I think it's a good way to go because there are a lot of people internationally that can still make really cool deals with different television networks in countries that you're not even thinking about, like French-speaking Africa, for example. But with that in mind, um, the, the, the one thing that you would have to do as a filmmaker is you still have to move some units. You have to figure out how to make some sales through your own channels, regardless of what happens internationally. Mm. And for that, you know, in, in, in full transparency, I work for a popular video on demand aggregator called Distriber. Yes. And what we help filmmakers do is we 
you know, we provide access to popular platforms like iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Netflix. Voodoo. Yeah. Got it. Yep. And if you work with an aggregator, you know, it's important to know that an aggregator does all the nerdy stuff like ingestion, encoding, quality control, review, delivery to the platforms, and eventually accounting. But if you work with an aggregator, it's important to have a strategy because ultimately you're 100% in charge of moving those units. So, um, and, and I'm trying to fit a lot into in a short amount of time. I could probably go on about each one of these for three days. Sure. Um, <laughs> but but when you release a film, you know, you brought up Netflix and, and there's another one here that's popular called Hulu. Those are considered SVOD or subscription video on demand platforms. I would not recommend and most distributors would not recommend moving forward on those first, because once your film's available for free, it's really hard to get people to go back and buy it. Mm. So. What we typically suggest is you go TVOD, then SVOD, then perhaps AVOD. So TVOD stands for transactional video on demand, SVOD stands for subscription video on demand, and AVOD stands for advertisement supported video on demand. Um, when it comes to transactional video on demand, that's one of these platforms where you would set a price, and then every time a sale is made, you get a big piece of the action. So for example, iTunes. iTunes is a 70-30 split. You put your film up there. Um, I keep trying to think in terms of uh, United Kingdom. Uh, yeah. So you put it up there for 10 pounds and, uh, <laughs> and you make a sale, uh, you, you get to keep seven pounds. Yeah. The point is at that, at this stage, you have to ask yourself, how many units do you need to sell in order to hit your goals in the transactional marketplace? And, and most filmmakers don't ask that question, you know, but the filmmakers who do, it, what it forces you to do, even though it's boring math stuff and nobody wants to think about it because it's not sexy, mm -hmm. but what it forces you to do, asking yourself these tough questions, is come up with really creative answers. And suddenly you start thinking, well, I need to move 10,000 units, so I, I better, I'm going to reach out to this website, this website, this website, and see if they'll do an email blast on my behalf. Yeah. You know, what would it take to get that kind of coverage in an email blast? And the next thing you know, you're working backwards and you've come up with a plan. What about a common mistake I see these days? And, I, and I'm guilty of this as well, my, ourselves, with, with previous work we've done. But how about, have you had films come to you and they've already done part of the legwork as well? Very enthusiastically, yeah, we've already got to this festival, that festival, and we've got a poster and a teaser trailer and a this trailer. It's like, well, you've already played a lot of your cards. What your What's your take on that? No, I don't, I don't fully agree with that uh, in the sense that I don't think you're – You've played your cards. I mean, if you've gone out and you've done festivals and you've had a good festival run, yeah. even if the festivals aren't Sundance or Slamdance or some of these bigger you know, festivals that we were talking about earlier, even if they're not the top tier festivals, yeah. there's still something to be said about going out there, seeing your film with a live audience in the theater. Oh, yeah. Um, and then also taking into account you know, some of the feedback and maybe, maybe that feedback – helps you refine your film maybe you do another cut before you go to market yeah i suppose with, with trailers as well i suppose sending trailers out to a website is there a specific time to strike or is it you know is it a strategized release um or is it you know if they've already reached out to websites and it's sort of it's played on one site here another one there a little bit here there is that a problem or is that okay well i, I think what you're getting at here is like the timing of your promotion there's sure. a lot of people i think to your point that do a whole lot of promotion rather prematurely without a plan for why they're doing that promotion. Mm. Nobody's going to remember your film two weeks from now if yeah. they just see like a quick ad or a blurb on a website. So at the time they see that blurb or that advertisement or that mention or that email blast, 
there better be something, some sort of action that somebody can take impulsively in that moment yeah. um, to kind of help you fulfill your goal. And so if your film is not available for sale, then that link should lead somebody back to um, a place where you can capture user information, like a name and an email address. Or for those of you that are super nerdy, like you do some Facebook messenger ads or you know, different things like that. But nonetheless, you want a way to be able to circle back with that person that's shown some interest and get them to take action at a point when when the film's available. Yes, ultimately, don't don't jump the gun. And although the temptation is there to release a teaser trailer whilst you're still making the film, just hold back, hold back, hold back until you can. Well, you know, well, if you do release that teaser trailer, it, it should have a call to action at the end, and that call to action should drive somebody to a place where they can give their name and an email address. You know, sure. Mm. So I'm not saying not to do that. Yeah, but but if you're but if you're doing it just for the sake of doing it, um you know, without any sort of objective, like trying to capture an email address, then that is wasted effort. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so now they've, they've moved on. Netflix have potentially got a deal with us or we haven't got there yet. We're doing the, the TVOD. What marketing should we be doing? Obviously, you mentioned Facebook ads there. Do you agree with Facebook ads? Do you think that they're useful? The only times any ads are useful is if is if they're they're working. And the cool thing about Facebook as well as transactional marketplaces like iTunes is iTunes depending on which aggregator you work with, but you should be able to see your iTunes sales stats like 24 hours later. So if you did, if you did a, a small Facebook ad or for that matter, any direct marketing strategy, you should be able to know whether or not that moved the needle the next day. So mm -hmm. if you spend, um, you know, again, I'll use dollars as an example, but you could translate on your own. But uh, let's say you spend $100 on advertisements, the next day you should have at least $100 back and then some. And if you don't have at least $100 back and then some on the next day, then, you know, something might be a little bit flawed in your marketing. Now, I'm oversimplifying that. Maybe you spend that $100 just to capture email addresses and then you have like an email sequence that's built up to help further the relationship and, and gain some excitement around the film. The cool part about that is you still have the email addresses so you can still reach out to people later and later and later. Hey, have you seen the film yet? Or, hey, we're having a screening here. Or, hey, um, the film's available on pre-order right now. So get your pre-order. And for the first 50 people that sign up, uh, you know, we're going to send you this free thing. Mm. Um, there, there's many, many different strategies and it can be very overwhelming for an independent filmmaker to try to think through all of that stuff. So I'm going to help you out. Uh, similar to how there's different roles on the film set and you don't have to be an expert in all of them. I'll, I'll kind of repeat, you don't have to be an expert marketer. Mm. You just have to know enough to be dangerous so that you can hire the right people. And the thing that you want to look for when you're hiring the right people or collaborating with the right people, because again, if you don't have a lot of money, maybe there's some other deals that you can work out. Uh, maybe somebody always wanted to work in film and they're stuck doing a boring marketing job. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, what you would say is I'm looking for help driving targeted traffic to a buy now button. And most every digital marketer on earth should know that scenario because it's what they do. But the minute you mentioned that it's for a feature film, then suddenly people's eyes start to glaze over and, and they don't know what to charge you. Next thing you know, it's a million dollar marketing budget 
that is totally unrealistic and misaligned with the actual project. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but I don't want to get too far, you know, into into the into the gobbledygook here. So just to take a step back, so you release on iTunes, maybe you put it in a pre-order for a few few weeks to a few months. Yeah. You make as many sales as you can. Um, then you go full sale, and anything that you made in pre-order counts as sales on that day. And the goal is to make as many sales as you possibly can because the more sales you make, the more you rise in the rankings, the more you rise in the rankings, the more people discover your work, the more sales you make. And it kind of creates a snowball effect. Yes. Yeah. So basically you want to do loads of pre-sales so that on the day, then all those pre-sales will count as that first day and suddenly it'll be, you know, a thousand of pre-sales, suddenly it'll be a thousand on that day. So suddenly you go up the charts. It's, it's a, it makes sense. It's a clever way of doing it. Big splash. Stuff. It's a hustle, you know, I tell mm. people and, and I'll tell you, you know, I just I mentioned a lot of stuff about Facebook ads and, and emails and all that stuff. And that can still be incredibly overcomplicated. So let's just say you're a scrappy independent filmmaker and you consider yourself to be a hustler. Mm. Literally pick up your phone and call everybody on your phone and tell them to buy your film. And if they give you any feedback, tell them you'll send them the, the money in the mail to, re, you know, to repay them. And then after that, obviously, delete them from your phone. <laughs> Good uh, tactic. No, no like but you're right. That personal touch is absolutely massively important. And if, if you've got the time, spend a day calling everyone and having a chat because people don't do it. And it would work. That's right. You would buy the film because of it. You the, the only is half the people you're calling have probably uh, already given you 100 quid to make your film. So <laughs> yeah. 100 quid, though. Well, by the way, just buy this DVD or Blu-ray and then you're golden. Yeah, like just do me a favor. I'm going to send you a link. Please go on iTunes and buy my film. Yeah. And if you really like it, leave leave some nice, you know, uh, leave, leave a nice review. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not telling anybody to do anything unethical here. It, no, sure. What I'm saying, but, but it is incredibly unsexy. And nobody wants to think about, you know, their filmmaking career this way. But here's the irony. If, if you can do that and you can hustle and you can get all those unit sales and you get on the first page of iTunes um, as one of the lucky few, uh, that, that's a kind of – that's a nice feather in your cap that you can later brag to other distributors or distribution companies or producers to let them know what you were able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, and plus the amount of confidence that you'll feel coming off of that. Like you don't, you don't have to ask permission to be successful in the film industry. Like that's, you're running a business. Yeah. Um, and I, and I find that to be incredibly, um, awesome. How many times do you find yourself banging your head against the brick wall that is, uh, theatrical distribution? So your, your film from a debut director, they'll, they'll say, well, I want it in, you know, X amount of screens theatrically. It has to be that. And there's, I don't know what the value is to that nowadays as much. Certainly going back maybe 10 years or more, it was all about theatrical. What value do you put in that now? It, it can be valuable in the sense you can leverage that for a better Netflix deal. You can leverage that here in the United States for a better cable video on demand placement, especially if you're still in the theaters, then you'll get a folder that says still in theaters. Mm. But nonetheless, like oftentimes it's viewed as a loss leader, uh, you know, to help maybe get some publicity around the film or maybe you're trying to go for an academy award i mean those those things are valuable if if that's what you're attempting to do but for most filmmakers i would say just view your film festival run as your theatrical release and while you're doing it if the film festival allows put your film into pre-order on itunes and make as many sales you know the day you're screening so that's quite a good chat go to your screening 
at the film festival and say this is you can pre-order this on itunes etc now yeah and again you want to check the fine print check with the film festival i'm sure some film festivals don't allow that but Mm. based on my experience a lot of them don't mind because it's not available for sale you're just taking orders for when it eventually will be for sale yeah in your q a just they should they should allow you to do that i don't see why they wouldn't that's yeah it's all about everyone should be working for each other and making films and the more money people make the more chance they're going to make another film which will come into their cinema or their festival. I think that's only a good thing. So, yeah, let's talk about the platform side of things then. Obviously, Distribber and then Netflix and stuff like that. What's the difference for you? How would it help a filmmaker like us? So, yeah, just just to, just to clarify a few points here. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about platforms and, and services, so Distribber is an aggregator. And an aggregator is one of these companies that will help you access popular platforms um, that you're not always able to access on your own. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of a few, most of these you have to work with an aggregator because the companies are ill-equipped to handle uh, the amount of customer service that would go with working with individual filmmakers. Um, So with all of that said, you know, in, in in this conversation, we've talked about TVOD. Uh, which is your first video on demand window that you're going to exploit uh, for maximum profit. So we keep talking about iTunes. I'll stay with that. But let's say, OK, so now, you know, three months have gone by. Your iTunes sales are starting to plateau, hmm. maybe drop off. Uh, simultaneous with this, you may want to get your film evaluated for Netflix. Uh, at Distribber, the way we do it is we do an internal evaluation. If we think we can sell it, we flip it over to Netflix. If Netflix is interested, they'll come back with an offer for one to two years. If uh, if we pass internally or if if Netflix isn't interested, then we'll typically try some other SVOD platforms. So maybe we'll try Hulu. If that's a no go, then there's always availability on Amazon Prime. But again, we've gone from TVOD to SVOD. And the reason we're going to this order is we're trying to maximize revenue because, you know, as I stated at the beginning, if your film's available for free right out of the gate, then you may, you know, cannibalize uh, some of the other additional opportunities you have. It's interesting. You mentioned, is there, was there any uh, relevance to the order of those, to Netflix, then Hulu, then Amazon Prime? Or is that, is that generally the order of which you might approach somebody? Well, oftentimes, and especially the way we work at Distribber, we kind of let the filmmakers tell us what they think. Sure. And and obviously, just like you and I are having this conversation, we'll add some of our thoughts to it. Um, Netflix right now, and, and these are the deals and all of this is subject to change like tomorrow. Who sure. knows? Mm. Um, but what I've seen is Netflix typically goes for more of an exclusive deal. So they want to have exclusive rights on SVOD. And in order to get those rights, they typically pay a lot more. Um, Hulu is only available in the United States and I believe Japan. So their footprint in the world is a lot less. So the deals in, in terms of what they pay for a license uh, is a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen the deals I've seen thus far have been non-exclusive. And then when we talk about Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime, for the most part, does not pay a licensing fee. But what they do is they'll pay independent filmmakers based on engagement. So the more views you get over a certain amount of time, the more minutes that add up, the more you get paid. Um, and, and I don't know what the direct translation is to it, but in the United States, it's 15 cents per every hour viewed, um, which is not a whole lot of money. If you think about one person watching the film, yeah, sure, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's not a lot. But if you think about yeah. 60 people watching one minute or 120 people watching 30 seconds or 240 people watching 15 seconds or 480 people watching 7.5 seconds, 
then it starts to add up because now you just have somebody that's just turning it on for a brief minute and they're like, oh, this is for me or, hey, this isn't for me. Sure. Either way, that still counts as money in, in the bank. Kind of. Just yeah, yeah, pennies. yeah. This guy gets an interesting mm-hmm. uh, three very different opportunities there. Yeah. So for Distriber, if someone wanted, they've made the film, can they send it direct to Distriber? Yeah, they absolutely can. The, the way that it would work is, you know, as long as it's fully finished product ready for the marketplace, you would just go to distriber.com and there's a big green button on the site. Mm-hmm. You'd fill out some information about your film and then you would be t- taken to an order form where you can choose which platforms you'd like to go to. Um, again, my recommendation, you could either choose to do all of the platforms. There's the full package deal that's offered, and you'll see that on the checkout page. And then there's also, you know, if you want to go a la carte, I would recommend doing, you know, at the very least iTunes, Amazon, and maybe Google Play right out of the gate, only and because those are popular TVOD platforms. So you're saying like uh, when your film's ready to go, so that might be a... Uh, moving target depending on who you are and I've spoken to some filmmakers that say oh my film's done it's like well it's got like 10 VFX VFX shots we've not cleared music rights and blah 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 so I suppose what are you exactly right what are your sort of like what are your no no these are the these what we consider to be a finished film well again we're going to let the filmmaker let us know when it's finished because even sometimes I'll have a filmmaker that comes to us gives us all the information about their film and I'll get into a conversation yeah and, and I'll say, well, are you ready to go? Are you ready to get out to Marketplace? Oh, yeah, we're ready. Uh, we just got to do six more film festivals, so probably sometime next year. Sure. Um, yeah. so, so that wouldn't necessarily be ready. And, of course, at that point, we could talk about the possibility of getting it into pre-order for iTunes. Um, but nonetheless, you know, what I've seen is it's typically a few months after a filmmaker signs up that they actually take action and start the process with us. And that's completely okay and acceptable. We, we only want to work with filmmakers – who want to work with us that understand the model, uh, understand what our business is and, and, and how we're attempting to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as we're a good fit, then, you know, we're going to let the filmmaker just decide when, when the time is right. Yeah. Um, it, it can take us anywhere from 45 to 90 days to get a film uh, through our factory for lack of better terminology. And, and the reason for that is if any part of the file is flawed, like if one pixel in one frame and the lower third is broken, uh, we're going to have to fix that before we make the delivery. So that could create some delays, but we'll stay in constant communication, let the filmmakers know. And and then there comes a certain point where they can actually pick a release date. And that's, you know, obviously something that they can talk about with their designated project manager. Mm. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to load it up too much, yeah. you know, with too much detail, Bottom line is you go to distributor.com, you click the green button, you fill out some info about your film, you choose your platforms, and then we go to work for you. That's great. Do, do, you, do you ever not take films on? I mean, is it a case of if it's just dreadful or terrible, or is that not your issue? Your issue is actually let's just see if we can get their film into the marketplace. Well, as long as the film can hit the technical specifications, we should be able to get into most of the TVOD platforms. When it comes to SVOD platforms uh, like your Netflix or Hulu, because those platforms pay money up front and because literally everybody on earth wants to be on you know, at least one of those platforms, do, yeah. there's a real supply issue. So we have to be very diligent in our curation. So I would say it's only a small percentage of films that even make it past our internal review for, say, a Netflix or a Hulu. Um, and that's by design. And you kind of want it that way, because if we sent everything that was submitted to us, we would quickly lose credibility. So uh, in the long run, it helps. Uh, but, 
you know, for a lot of filmmakers, their film's just not the right fit for for those platforms. What I think's great about Disturb is, you know, the filmmaker gets to keep 100% of the revenue. And I think that that's vital. And I think it's so important. And that's why I think it's a great platform. I know Alex Ferrari with his This Is Meg film from Indie Film Hustle, he did that with you guys, didn't he, with Distriber? And it worked very well for yeah, him. Yeah, Alex is a great guy. He was able to go on there and, and uh, he actually got a Hulu deal out of that. Um, but again, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that the, the, the world of independent film is changing. And I think it's the hustlers uh, that, that are really, you know, figuring out how to, how to move uh, volume in other words, I'm trying to put it a different way. I was trying to pay Alex a compliment, but um, bottom line is uh, he's a hustler. He gets things done. If you need a model on how to hustle, I'd say he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, I totally agree. And very quickly, we actually will put it in show notes, actually, where you can find, you can find, you can find his oh, yeah. stuff and then uh, follow up on what he's been doing. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of uh, distribution, you're saying at the moment that the, the model is, is there for filmmakers to to actually get their work out and seen, but they've got to do the hustle. They've got to do the work. They really do. And, and one of the interesting observations uh, that, that at least I've discovered through working in this space is the films that get the best distribution deals don't necessarily need a distributor to be successful. Uh, we had a film at Distributor called Range 15. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know that film. They really hit it out of the park and, and they had a lot of different distribution offers or at least some interest. Um, but they knew on their own they could do it better uh, than the distributors. And of course, once you have that attitude in any negotiation, then people are more interested in you. It's a weird human thing. But um, sometimes, you know, you're doing something cool and and you realize and other people realize they want to be part of that cool thing. But then you're like, I don't need these other people. And then they want you more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's great. Listen, Jason, we could talk all day about this. This is fantastic stuff. Just just a couple more questions from us. Sure. In terms of advice, what advice would you give now to someone who hasn't picked up a camera, wants to do it and wants to move forward? I, I know it's a little bit generic to say this, but, you know, like like the Nike thing, just do it. Yeah. Of course, when before I had just done anything, I was terrified that I would do something and I would find out that it sucked. Mm. And then I would think like, oh, I'm untalented and this thing I've been dreaming about is never going to work out. And, and it's just in those times, it's just easier to do nothing and dream than actually take a step in the direction of your goals. What I've learned through experience is anything that you do today you're going to look back in five years and you're going to think that it sucks anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's so true. No, it's very true. Very true. Right? So yeah. you may as well just, I mean, if you guys think about some of your projects, I'm, I'm sure you thought you were brilliant at the time, sure. as I did. Yeah. yeah. I've got a, they're, they're, unfortunately, they're available for people to go, go and buy, which is a, a slight issue. And but... not on distributor or anything. <laughs> right you look back on it, you're like, oh, that sucked. Yeah, There's exactly. a very cool, I'm going to, I'm going to shout out to uh, Mick Garris' podcast. He did one recently with Oren Pelly, the director of Paranormal Activity. Mm. I didn't realize quite how much, very much of that same attitude you've talked about, Jason. He was a IT specialist, I believe. He's like, I just want to go and make a movie. It's true, yeah. And uh, and just right. So I look up online. How do you do casting? Okay, that's how you cast. Fine, I'll do that. And he just literally he YouTube the whole thing mm. to to I suppose to to boil it down to its uh, its sort of basic form. He he just consulted a few how to books, YouTube, 
And then went, okay, I'll just do it a step-by-step tip. And then came out with, okay, you know, it was a shakier version of it. And then DreamWorks, ultimately DreamWorks picked up his movie. Yeah. So that was very much, a, you know, if I build it, they'll come kind of attitude. You have the choice between doing something or doing nothing. I would say doing something. And I want to be clear, as long as you can keep a safe set, I don't want to hear any sure. crazy stories about people doing dangerous things to either themselves or their crew yeah very um, or their yeah. cast yeah. but but assuming you know we're all reasonable human beings and we know how to keep things safe you know i would say given the resources you have right now what is the film you can make this year mm-hmm. and for some people that's just you know taking camera taking their camera phone their iphone and using that camera to record the refrigerator <laughs> you know for 10 minutes like if that's the film you can make this year then do that one mm. now that's going to suck Big time. Um, but, well, maybe not. I mean, here. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a good refrigerator film yet. <laughs> uh, Reckon for Your Dreams got a great refrigerator section. Ah, oh, that's a section. Oh, uh, yeah, good point. Film, but, uh, yeah. Well, see, this is, this is what happens when a bunch of creative people get together. So, and, and just this conversation, even though we're kidding around, suddenly think like, oh, well, you, you both in, in seconds came up with an example of how somebody made a refrigerator interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just... Stick a zombie in it and a romance story. <laughs> there you go. So you're starting to add elements to something that, that, was, that started out really boring and you're figuring out ways to make it creative yeah. in a way that's managed with the resources you have. You yeah. can do that this weekend. And most people don't. Most people are waiting for 20 million I, I keep yeah, thinking they're of, waiting like, for the big deals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah you're, you're right. right. I think also it's. I, I've chatted to people before. Whereby, well, there's no point doing X, Y, and Z. It's all been done. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, everything has been done. But you take. Let's say you could. You know, we've talked about this in a previous podcast. If you took the script of Jaws, and we remade it tomorrow, no matter what happens, if we set out to make it remake it frame for frame, it would come out completely different. It would yeah. because the people you employ, the timing, the days you got to shoot, the weather, everything will affect what you do. So any film, if you went out to remake a film you just you're not going to shot for shot remake it so no any idea that's been done when you make it with the people you know it just comes out different yeah absolutely basically don't not make something because you think oh someone else has just done that don't worry about it go make your film and then you can make the next one and the next uh, one absolutely and and just you know uh, and by the way this kind of takes a full circle back to like what i find so fun about film and filmmaking why I stick around this industry um is exactly that it's like a fluid you know creation process but because i'm a a distribution guy Mm -hmm. let me also point out that if you do the refrigerator film and i'm sorry i'm harping on this i took something that was a joke and now i'm thinking about it seriously is this a go project should we do this should we do it because it's now turned into a sci-fi and it's called freezing time (laughs) amazing but but if you put that on amazon you could put it as an ambient film you know uh, george ford made a film called fireplace for your home um, where he put a camera in front of a fireplace. And now over the holiday season, and I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but you should look this up. Over the holiday season, you'll go in a lot of homes and people have a fireplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's an ambient film. And if you put something like that on Amazon Prime, uh, again, it's 15 cents per every hour viewed. So that adds up. Annoyingly simple, but I'm sure he, they've probably raised enough money to, to make something else. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. And hopefully, you know, a bit more interesting. um so look obviously do check out jason's work at filmmaking stuff his podcast is brilliant always full of really insightful information check out his website for more distribution stuff all this will be in the show notes jason really appreciate your time where can people follow you online what's your socials you can find me at jason brubaker la on twitter facebook forward slash filmmaking stuff for the filmmaking stuff community amazing um you can follow me at giles alderson 
and me at C James Direct on Twitter. And you can follow the Filmmakers Podcast at Filmmakers Pod. Go to our website, filmmakerspodcast.com. Follow us on iTunes. Do give us a nice review uh, if you're a nice person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why not? Be nice about it all. And remember, being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is. Get out there and do it. And if you're lucky enough to do well, then rise up. It's your duty to send the elevator back down. And uh, give us 5%. And give us a little bit more than that. Um, <laughs> Jason, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this has been fantastic. I'm sure our listeners will love this distribution section. Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. And then we'll see you guys next Tuesday, as always. Take care for now. Cheers. Legend. Thanks for that. Take care. Bye.